The Bookfinger podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and finding readers. This is episode 29 featuring Honey de Peralta in Metro Manila. Bookfinger would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this episode was produced and pay respects to their elders both past and present. Welcome to the Book Thinker Podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thinker Podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thinker Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthinger.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. This episode feels a little strange, not in a bad way, don't get me wrong, but it's the first time I've interviewed someone I knew well before I got into book blogging. Honey de Peralta works with the international sales team for Penguin Random House US, but we also went to primary school together before my family migrated to Australia. I remember in my last year of school in Manila, I shared a tent with Honey and one of our other friends as part of a Girl Scout overnight camping activity, and we discovered very quickly that we had similar survival skills, which is to say, almost none. Anyway, we reconnected through book blogging. Honey is now the sales manager for Southeast Asia for Penguin Random House, and although she doesn't specialize in romance, she has so much knowledge about the Philippine book industry and so much passion as a reader advocate. You can find information on all the books we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 29. I work for Penguin Random House as a sales rep here in Southeast Asia, but apart from like that day job, I also try to do a lot, a lot of advocacies for reading. So what kinds of advocacies are you involved in? Because I've noticed that a lot of people who are involved as readers in the book industry in the Philippines, mm-hmm. they a lot of them do have advocacies around literacy and around some of them are uh, genre-focused. The main advocacy that I have is the Filipino Reader Con. Uh, it's a completely volunteer-run event. There is uh, a board, quote-unquote, because we haven't entirely formalized it. Uh, and what we do is we organize the event once a year. We gather book bloggers, um, book clubs, authors, publishers, students, and teachers just to celebrate reading and readership and the reading communities and, of course, um, writing. But the focus is on reading. Connected to that, there's this thing, the elections just happened, and there's all of this like perplexity about why the son of the former dictator uh, is almost winning. So one of the things that we're trying to work on is like gather books written about martial law and maybe create like a resource site so that people can go to it and see, okay, these are the things that teachers can use to teach martial law and they can talk about it this way. It's still in its very early stages, but it's something that we want to do. So anything that will help. Why do we do these things? (laughs) Um, Well, I can speak for why I do these things. I think there are a lot of gaps that have to be filled when it comes to like readership and um, the book industry. Not because the people who are in charge of it aren't really trying or don't really have planning skills. Um, They do. 
but part of it is the budget, part of it is like the situation that they're in. So whatever we can do, whatever I can do to like help with literacy or reading, you know, just getting the word out there, I'd love to do because in any case, it's a passion. So we were chatting on Twitter about the historical resources for martial law and right. this kind of dawning realization that the history hasn't been told in a way that has, I guess, penetrated through to the next generation. Why do you think that is? That's a, that's a question that a lot I mean, of people are trying to answer. and Not just martial law, but yes. just generally speaking, is it structural? that uh, we aren't collecting the stories? Is it that we think readers aren't going to buy those books so therefore there's no impetus for publishers to seek them out? I think it's a combination of um, those things. One, why are things forgotten? There are certain things that might not be emphasized in schools, might be put aside because, you know, you have, if you're a teacher, you have like this packed curriculum and you want to teach everything in the curriculum and you might not have all of the time to devote to something like martial law or any other important historical event. And I say this because I used to teach. I used to teach for like 11 years. I taught English, not history, but I understand also the, the difficulty that teachers face. So that's one. Another would be the materials. There is a lack of materials Maybe not in the private schools in the country where teachers are more resourceful, they have more money, they have more exposure, but in other schools, like the smaller private schools, uh, the public schools. So you have teachers who have a lot of students, they have a lot of work, so they don't really have all of the resources and then they don't have the time. And so maybe that doesn't get emphasized. I would like to think that it's not that they don't want to teach it. Maybe they do. One of my other friends brought up the fact that maybe it's also the way it's being taught. Maybe it's a focus on dates. Oh, dates, the rote learning people. and the history. Yeah, not really about stories. Now, when it comes to publishing, actually, I just got a list uh, yesterday from one of the publishers of all of the books about martial law that they published. And it was quite extensive. But I think the situation is also that there are all of these books, but not many people know about it. And that's why I was thinking maybe it's just a matter of bringing these books to the attention of people. There are all of these books. I was discussing a book with my book club called Ed Sauno Dos Tres. Uh, we had that discussion, I think, a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken. It was a fantastic book about uh, the Ed's revolutions, all three of them so far. The thing is, it was an independently published book with a limited print run, and the distribution wasn't that great. You know, it was only among a few circles. So you have like a really, really fantastic resource, um, and it helps you understand like what the situation was, what the context was, but not a lot of people know about it. Are they affordable, the books? Is that part of That the particular book was affordable. The other books about martial law, I mean, I can't speak for all of them. I think some of them are. Of course, some of them are a little bit pricey, but they're on average how much a book costs here. Because I was chatting with Mina about uh -huh. this sort of in passing yesterday, and one of the things we talked about was what is the goal of publishing the book? If the goal is to sell, then you price it at a price that's comparable to similar books. But if, it's, if the goal is to educate, then you might need to lower the price to make it accessible to more people. I agree. 
pricing, you know, it's always a tricky issue when people ask me about pricing. <laughs> well, I mean, I know because the readers want cheaper books, but the yes. publishers can only make them as cheap as up to a certain point, right? Yes. What I was thinking a while ago when you were asking about pricing, uh, I was thinking, oh, should I go into like um, how I think some publishers actually think about <laughs> pricing the books? Cause yeah, I think, yeah, because I think there are different um, schools of thought. Uh, I know like some publishers price it based on production cost. So if your print run is small, therefore the unit price per book goes up. So you want to make sure that you're not actually losing money on that book. And most of the print runs here, especially for books like that, they're not huge. So they do tend to be a little bit more expensive. So they're priced according to production cost. Um, but there's a different way of looking at pricing. Like you said, if you want it to be educational, then you bring down the price because what you're hoping for is volume. Or you can look at it in terms of like the market. What is the, what, what is the market paying for books like this? So even if you want to have like a large margin, then you don't because you know that if they're only paying, what, 300 pesos for this kind of book, then you, you price it. Yeah, you have to price it. If you're an independent publisher, like the publisher of that book that um, I used for a book discussion, they're an indie publisher. They also don't want to lose money. So it's not as cheap as it could be. I can't remember the exact price right now, but it's not especially pricey. And um, I was actually talking to them as asking, like, you know, would you like help, like, distributing this or talking to schools about this because it's a fantastic resource. But I think they were, you know, they're still trying to figure out, like, what to do with the book. So there are these books. And pricing, yes, is one issue. And that's something that I can't entirely control or a reader can't entirely control. But what we can do is the exposure, you know, getting people to know that there are these titles Maybe this is how you can group them if you're talking to 12-year-olds. Maybe these are the books that you can teach. If you're talking to 16-year-olds, these are the books that you can teach and use. The other thing I've noticed is that the, the stories, I don't know about the books, but the stories I hear tend to focus on EDSA because it's the, yes. I guess, the culmination, the victory, uh -huh. the, the part where the people win. But the problem with that is that when we don't talk enough about what happened before, you lose the context of why that was so important. And so people who didn't live through that time see this kind of celebration of a victory. And then when they see that, is it 30 years since Edza? 30 um, years. 30 yeah. years later. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And they <laughs> see that 30 years later, the promise of Edza has not yes. been entirely fulfilled. All they see is the lack of delivery after Edza. They don't remember because we don't really focus on some of the atrocities that happened before. And I think, I actually think it's partly because when I read a lot of those stories, there's a lot of focus on forgiveness and on moving forward. And I think some yeah. of it is also to do with, you know, these people have suffered and the people who were victims of the Marcos regime, you know, we tend to feel they've suffered enough. So let's not torture them, I guess, emotionally by having their stories out there all the time. We kind of take it for granted that people know these stories exist. Yeah. But then the next generation comes along. Unless they hear the stories and they hear enough of them, it doesn't feel real to them, I don't think. I think there are enough stories actually about martial law, but you're right there. Like now, maybe because Edsa's closer to like this generation, it's 30 years ago, and martial law is what? 15? I mean, before yeah, we were born, 40, really. yeah. 72. So that's more years ago. And Edsa is like. Um, it's a happy story. You know, it yeah. has a happy ending. 
um, of sorts, right? Because he, he got rid of a dictator. But there are stories of martial law. You're right, though. There's not a lot of focus on those stories because we don't actually celebrate martial law. In the and they're same hard way to read. They're really hard to read. They are because it's, it's heavy reading. Another thing you mentioned, like the focusing on like moving on and forgiveness and all of that. I'm not sure if that's also a particular Filipino I think it's trait. Yeah. yeah. We're a Catholic nation. So you want to stress forgiveness. You want to stress like, okay, we're all one and we're all family and God loves the Filipinos and all of that. And also the way that we handle a lot of stressful things is to make fun of it, to make light of it. So I think that's one of the things that we have to contend with. And by saying contend with, meaning that we have to acknowledge it, but we also have to find a way to make these stories, um, bring the context of EDSA, which is martial law, bring it back to light. Like, what are the stories that will capture the imagination? Because I think that's what needs to be done. The reason for me why the history is important is because without it, they have enough resources to rewrite the history. Because once yes. you get to power, you get to control yeah. how those stories are disseminated and what stories are focused on and what stories you keep sort of hidden or you lose. Yeah. And I don't really see Bonbon as the kind of person who will allow his father's history to be told right. unvarnished. Which, honestly, if he could just apologize for it and give maybe right. some of the money back, I would be the same. I would be like, okay, he apologized. It wasn't him. He might have been 16 or whatever at the time. But you know, at 16, you're still doing what your parents tell you. And if he's proven himself in uh, regional politics, then good on him. But I really have a problem with people who want to try to change the history for their benefit. Because then I feel like that isn't an honorable way to start. Exactly. Anyway, moving on from such serious Sorry. topics. <laughs> in a lovely twist of fate, we were actually classmates in primary school uh, before I moved to <laughs> yes. Sydney. And we reconnected when I found your blog. And it was through you that I learned about the Phil Reader Con. So I think you co-founded it. And now you're still helping to run the con, which is annual. Yes. I think. It started with um, the Philippine International Lit Fest. Actually, the first Philippine International Lit Fest, which was in 2010. Uh, I attended that. And, you know, it was an international literary festival. I can't remember who all the speakers were, but I was so excited to be there. And at that time, 2010, I was already book blogging. I knew all of the other book bloggers, well, not all, but most of the other local book bloggers. I was following and talking with a lot of international book bloggers. And then I was part of a book club called Flips Flipping Pages. It used to be in Shelfari. Uh, which was closed down, I think, a couple, a few months ago. And then, um, and then Goodreads was also around at that time. So I also knew that there was this huge online book club on Goodreads of Filipinos. So I knew that there was this whole book community around, and we were interacting with each other, mostly online. And it was so active, it was so vibrant. In fact, at that time, I would be at work, and, you know, periodically I would check my Shelfari threads where Flips Flipping Pages was. And, you know, it was just continuous, like, comments and people would talk about books. 
And so it was such an active, active community. So when I went to the International Lit Fest, we had talks by writers, by publishers, by teachers, but there was no representation from readers. And it struck me as strange because I was also following other literary events around the world which had representation from readers. There was a panel about book blogging. There was a, you know, readers were invited to like have their books signed or to talk to the authors. And there was nothing like that in the International Lit Fest. To be fair, it was the first time that there was that Lit Fest. So I thought there was something lacking. I was, I was a little bit disappointed. And my friend, Tari Sabido, who is a children's book blogger, and currently she's the chairman of the Philippine Board of Books for Young People. She was there and we were talking and she was also in that same book blogging community. So uh, after the Lit Fest, we had dinner and I was sitting there and I was thinking, God, I would love to have like a festival where you actually had readers talk. So I asked her, I said, Tari, what would be your ideal festival? So she said, like, you know, it would be like you had readers interacting with authors and with publishers. And I said, yeah, because I also want something like that. And I'm thinking, what if we, if it's not yet in existence, what if we put up something like it? And she was like, oh my God, yes, we should. <laughs> so, and we got so excited over it. And we, I think a month after, we talked to a few friends and they were excited about it too. And uh, anyway, it was a dinner and it ended with, okay, let's figure out how we're going to do this. And that was January. And for months after that, there was like nothing, <laughs> you know, uh, nothing happened. I wasn't sure how to go about it. And I was also thinking, God, this is, this is not like It's a big project. Yes, this is not a full-time thing that we can do because we all had jobs. Out of the blue, because I was working for a publishing company then, and the Manila International Book Fair was coming up, the events coordinator actually the marketing head of that uh, publishing company just talked to me and she said that she was talking to the the one who's organizing the Middle International Book Fair. And then out of the blue, I just asked her, can you ask them if they have a free room? Because I was thinking of gathering a few bloggers, book bloggers and book club members, you know, maybe they have a free room. And she asked, like, she asked more details and I described it to her as just a gathering of readers, a Filipino reader call, but we want to keep it small, just, just see. And then she gets back to me and she says, you know what, yeah, I talked to them and they're going to give you a free room and actually I'm also going to give you sponsorship. And so... It fell on your lap. She got back to me in five minutes and everything was there and she was going to give me everything. I was like, okay, thanks. <laughs> so, well, so, so hang on. So first, the first one, was it really just in that room? It was yes, like a small it was in home. one room. It was for 70 people and it was sponsored by a few other publishers, but the major sponsor that time was a publishing company I worked for because the marketing manager said that, yeah, she's willing to like sponsor it because she thinks it's a good thing. And Prime Trade Asia, which organizes the Middle International Book Fair, uh, was also willing to sponsor it by giving us a free room. So everything fell into place. And, and so what happened in that first Phil Reader Con? What we wanted to do was something simple, introduce the book bloggers, introduce the book club. So we only had like two uh, panels. One was book clubs, like why they're book clubs and how to put it up. And the other one was about book blogging, where I invited uh, a few book bloggers. Of course, Tari was there to represent children's literature. Charles was there for speculative fiction. There were a few other literary bloggers who were there, and they're around now, but I think they're more on Bookstagram. 
and they talked about how they started their blogs, why they started their blogs, and what are the usual things that they, what are the usual issues actually that they face when it comes to blogging. And then I invited three book clubs, three local book clubs. Uh, one was Flips Flipping Pages, which at that time was like the largest. I think membership was 1,000 something, and this wow. is online. Okay, I was gonna yeah. say, that's like a big meeting. <laughs> yeah, but they already had, we actually, we already had monthly meetings at that time, and there would be like 30 people showing up to these monthly meetings. The other book club was the Filipino group in Goodreads. At that time, they were a little less, but they also were, I think, around 1,000 online members. And then I invited a book club called Ex Libris, which is also an NGO, so aside from being a book club, they also like raise money every year to send scholars to UP, University of the Philippines. And they talked about how they put together their book clubs and what happens, you know, do they let the moderator decide on the book of the month or is it a democratic thing that they vote and then what happens in the book discussions. So it was nice. Uh, and most of the people who were there, so it was supposed to be a room for 70 people, but it was standing room only. I think we had like wow. um, more than that. We didn't invite a lot of publishers, but there were a few showed up. I remember, I think, Fran from Tahanan Books, which is a children's book publisher. Mina Esguera was there. I didn't really know her that well at that time, but she was there. And she. I remember during the Q&A of the blogging panel, she was talking about how bloggers were important to her because the bloggers helped get um, her books out there. And there was a lot of enthusiasm, and people were like, we have to do this again next year. Oh, yeah, and there were other publishers who were sponsors who gave books. So uh, the tradition of making sure that people come home with at least one book from the ReaderCon started then. So a lot of goodwill, and so we decided that we'd do it again. The second year, you know, people had heard of what we did. Small, small group of people, but you know, the industry here is very small too. Were these mostly bloggers? Or did you start getting just sort of ordinary readers out of? Most of them were still from the book club community and the blogging community, but I think more were from the book clubs because not everyone in the book club was blogging. In that second year, because we had a whole day program as opposed to a half day program in the first year, we had sessions with publishers also and writers. So in that second year, we introduced one of the mainstays, uh, one of the panels that we always have now in the reader conferences, authors as readers. We would invite authors and they would talk about their favorite books as they were growing up, the books that influenced them to write what they write now. And um, the instruction for these authors is that you're not going to talk about your writing <laughs> process. We don't want you to talk about... No craft. The, yes, what you do as a writer. We want you to talk about yourself as a reader. And that was great. And then we also encouraged them, if you want, you can raffle off one of your favorite books. And then there was a panel on publishers, like, do publishers listen to readers? Like, you know, what, what feedback do they get from readers? So it started becoming a mix. So that was the second one, and then the following year, because we succeeded for two years, we were thinking like, oh, let's make it bigger, you know? And by the way, all of this is put together with volunteers. So I, I usually head the core committee, the one who organizes everything, but there are also committee heads for logistics, marketing, um, registration, and these are all volunteers, but mostly people just come and spend a lot of time and effort and even money without getting anything in return. Well, they get happiness in books. <laughs> that's it, yes. So if that's the only thing I can promise people, they all go home with a book. 
you learned anything interesting about Filipino readers as a consequence of running the event? Just that there are many types of readers. When I look at the Filipino Reader Con, actually, I always want to make sure that it's true to its name and it's supposed to be the Filipino Reader Con. Admittedly, when it started out, and this is something that the manager of the Filipino Heritage Library then pointed out, that it's a fantastic event. But if you look at the people who are coming, they're from a certain community. And so when you want Is this a class issue again? Yes, that's one of the things. So I've always wanted to make sure that it's inclusive because it has to be inclusive. Because what we champion as a reader con is that every Filipino is a reader. We want to make sure that we help all the Filipino readers come out of the woodwork, realize that there are all of these other readers. And it can't be just one kind of reader. While we were organizing the reader con, I realized that we have so many other reading communities that weren't within our immediate network. And when I started looking at them, they were so huge too. They were big and vibrant. A couple of years ago uh, in the book fair, so it's a huge hall, and I was at one end of the hall, and then I hear shrieking from the (laughs) other end of the hall. And I'm like, what is that? What is going on? And then I go there, and I thought it was like some, some actress, but no, it's a, it's a Wattpad author, whom I did not know because a lot of them are young. They're like in their 20s, early 20s. Some of them are teenagers, but they have such a huge following. So when I looked into these reading communities, they were so much bigger even than the communities that I was familiar with. And they read like different books than what I probably read or like a lot of my friends read, but they're very passionate about these books. And then, so that's Wattpad. And then you also have the romance readers, you know, the Filipino romance, Precious Pages. Oh, the Tagalog. The Tagalog uh, romance, yeah. yeah. And those are also huge. And, you know, those are the power readers that read what, like... Do those readers have a voice? I mean, I feel like they're there. They're, they're there in numbers because those books take up, like, at least two bookshelves in national bookstores. Yes. And that's the small store. It's not the big store. But we don't really hear them represented in discussions, I don't think. You don't. So in the third reader con, I wanted to make sure that they were there. Uh, the publisher, June Matias of Precious Pages, I invited him because I said I wanted to give you a panel. And he asked why. And that third year, actually, the venue was in Ateneo de Manila University, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is admittedly okay. That's like a posh university. It's a, I know. It's a posh university. And, and so those Tagalog paperbacks are not considered posh books. Like they would be, you know below the Mills and Boons, because at least the Mills and Boons are in English, right? Exactly. So June, the publisher, was saying <laughs> that, but it's in Ateneo, how are we going to go there? And I was like, you know, that's just a venue, and just go and just bring your readers, because I want them in the panel, because they are Filipino readers, and this is supposed to be the Filipino Reader Con. So he came and he brought a lot of his authors. Not a lot of the readers were there because they weren't able to go because of scheduling issues. But I mean, it's a start, it's, right? Yes, it's a start. And they have a voice, I suppose, in their community, but not in the larger you know, reading community. They're, I suppose they're not really that acknowledged when it comes to like, the establishment, the literary establishment, because they're not considered literature. But if you look at publishing... I suppose among all of the other trade publishers, the ones that really, really do well in terms of like sales and readership are these books. I just wanted to make sure that they had a voice too. To what end? I'm not entirely sure, but you know, I, I want to, you have to acknowledge them because they are a big part of the Filipino readers. 
I just look at their Facebook page where where other publishers will have like 5,000, 10,000 followers. Precious Pages, one of the publishers of Filipino romances, will have 40,000 followers. So they're huge. And it's such a loyal following. So that was one community that I wanted to involve. The, the Wattpad community, we also involved them that year, invited a Wattpad author. Because I don't even want to say what is literature and what is not literature, what should be read and what should not be read. That's not what we want to do. We acknowledge that people have preferences. Everyone has preferences. But if we're talking about Filipino reader con and the fact that our mission is to champion Filipino readers, it has to be championing all kinds of Filipino readers. Do you get people from outside the metro area, though? That was one of the things that we tried to do during the third Filipino Reader Con. I got a reader from Mindanao to talk about his experiences uh, growing up as a reader in Mindanao. Um, and that was actually interesting because he was saying that when he was younger, he would take the boat from Mindanao to Metro Manila. And a boat? A boat, oh my gosh. yeah, at that time. Because, you know, um, Gilbert, the, the guy I invited, he's, um, he's not young. <laughs> So he was saying back then, before there was, was a national like bookstore, yeah, before there was a national bookstore in General Santos or a fully book, you would, I think, take the bus to Cagayan, and then from Cagayan take the boat to Metro Manila, which was, if I'm not mistaken, a two-day trip. The boat would arrive in the morning, and he would get off, and he would then go to Recto, where he would buy books. And these weren't like school books. I suppose he bought school books, but he bought like, you know, fiction. And he would buy them, and in the afternoon, he would ride the... Catch the commute back. Yeah. Wow. The, the two-day commute back. So, you know, that was the kind of story that I wanted other people to realize, because... Because we take for granted yes. that we can just go to the National Bookstore, the fully booked, yes. the library even. And majority of, almost all of the attendees are from Metro Manila. So, so we, how do you bring something like that to the regional areas? Because it's hard, it's costly even if you ran a showcase or something? From the last ReaderCon, there were actually a lot of discussions about bringing the ReaderCon outside of Metro Manila. So last year was the fifth ReaderCon. It's always been in Metro Manila because it's been the easiest thing to do, frankly. I mean, everyone organizing it is based here. Right? Yeah, but um, from the third year that we did it, we already had inquiries about bringing it to other regions. The limitation really is the people because it's made up of volunteers. So uh, every year, it's always calling for volunteers. And admittedly, there are people who always volunteer, and there's a core group. I think the ReaderCon has reached that point where, okay, it's not as easy as it once was to grab the volunteers, I guess if only because it's been around for like five years. You know, In the third year I was talking about, will we ever have like conference fatigue, you know, we, we get tired of doing this. And you know what? Usually, before I organize a reader con, I always ask myself, why am I doing this? <laughs> why am I going to go through the effort and all that? And then you go through the effort. Actually, last year, because I was very busy, I told the core committee, you know, guys, I might not be able to organize it, and if you could help out. And they did beautifully. Nina and Paolo, they helped with the program. Tina did, you know, most of the online marketing. And I think um, if there's one thing about my role that hasn't changed, it's 
it's the asking for money. So <laughs> asking for money and asking for a book, sponsorship. So I think when it comes to that, when it comes to like, can we find the money to bring it to other places? And can we find the venue? I think, yes, I just need the people. And the people just need to have the time because that's also one factor. As someone who's plugged into Filipino readers. You know, I'm not sure if I'm that plugged in anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be plugged in because I was always on social media. I was, now I'm only on Facebook and really sometimes Facebook is boring. <laughs> <laughs> I have just rediscovered Instagram and oh my God, the book community and Instagram, even the Filipino book community. And from what I can see, it's still YA. Like you have the bookstores now. And I'm pretty happy about that because when you started out the reader con, you didn't have bookstores inviting like these big foreign authors to their stores and then organizing these large events, but now they do. And when a YA author is invited, they're like rock stars. I was watching one over Twitter the other a few months ago and they uh -huh. had like you had to line up for half an hour to get a number to line up later on to get your book signed. Yes. So it's like that. Um, I saw this video actually during the sales conference that we had of Ransom Riggs. First, the camera shows this huge crowd, and then it pans. It shows him coming out, and then it's <laughs> shrieking. And it's fantastic. So the YA readership, I mean, I know there's always a broad spectrum, and you'll always get different readers of different ages, but I yeah. know, I mean, I think... I, well, I don't know. I don't want to presume. Do they skew towards the younger readers, or is it a more balanced mix? I think it's similar to what you see worldwide in the U.S., where you have a YA book that cuts across different age ranges. So yes, you have teenagers reading it, but you also have like the moms reading it. In fact, I have a few mom friends, you know, my, my fellow parents with my kids, and there are all, a couple of them become like, okay, recommend some books for me, like the YA books that you can recommend to my daughter, one of her older daughters, so that I can also read them. So I think there's also a big set of older readers who read the YA books here. So that's one of the trends. We touched on this uh, in our previous discussion, huh? but um, multimedia integration and accessibility. So I know that Filipinos are some of the most prolific users of mobile phones, oh, and yeah. I think the Wattpad phenomenon is really part of that. So how are books translated into the kinds of tools that are accessible? That's a tricky question to answer. Um, one, if you're talking about how to make it more accessible, I think readers are actually finding their own way to access the books. The problem has not necessarily been solved by the industry. We are very active online. I was presenting a few slides actually that I got from We Are Social. And although the Philippines has just 40% penetration of the internet, when it comes to the number of hours on social media, uh, among all of the countries that were surveyed, we're number one. We spend <laughs> on average six hours online. 40 million Filipinos, six hours online. It's like yeah. Gsmith translated online, I feel. <laughs> exactly, yes, because we like talking. Yeah. <laughs> and we like, we like performing, too. But when it comes to books, I was in the ebook industry for a while. It's not necessarily translated into ebooks. They buy stuff online. More and more people are buying stuff online, but they're not necessarily buying books. Because print is still very... Um, 
because yeah. the print still seen as more valuable than the ebook. Yeah, but also the other factors are whether they do have the power to buy online. So access to mobile phones mm -hmm. is one thing. Um, yes, more and more people have 3G, but how do they pay for it? The Philippines isn't really a credit card country, it's a cash country. I don't have the updated figures now, but when I left the ebook industry, it was like only 5% of Filipinos are cardable. Um, so most people don't have credit cards. And then, if you talk about these trends, you know, the people who read YA books, the people who read Filipino romance, these aren't the people who have, not a lot of them will have credit cards. So how do they pay? You do have some products right now that aren't credit cards and will allow you to purchase things, you know, online. So you have these cash cards. But again, um, I'm not sure what the penetration of those products are right now. So it's the issue of payment. So you do have like a lot of content online. You have the ebooks. You have like um, local ebook stores that try to make things more accessible for Filipinos. But it's that. It's the fact whether they can buy it, whether they have the means to buy it. And if they don't have the means to buy it, but they want it, then they're just going to download it through a, pirate, uh, through a pirate site. And I've seen that, a lot of it. So, but is that something that cannibalizes sales, or it's just they just never had the money anyway, so it's not like... You know, that's a, uh, that's a very interesting question. I had a discussion about that with one of the publishers, and I was trying to tell him that a pirated book does not always translate to like a lost sale. A pirated book can translate to like someone picking up the book from the bookshelf and saying, oh, this is interesting. But that person might not actually, if the person had money. And it's it, like I'm only moderately yeah, kind of sold on your book. Yeah. So it doesn't actually translate to the person buying that book. Um, now, is it a... Is it considered not lost sale because the person didn't have money anyway? I think that's also a possibility because a lot of these are kids. Um, I was telling me because there's no there's no um, there's no resale for ebooks. There's no used book discount really, so you can't get them any cheaper than what they're selling for retail. Yeah, and then I was um, talking to Mina and Charles about this too because. Some time ago, I discovered there were all of these like sellers on Instagram, and they were selling ebooks, pirated ebooks. They'd sell them oh, for like okay. five pesos per file. That was like one set of people, and you know you can call them out because why you're making money out of things that are free, and you actually shouldn't be making money out of that. That's stealing, etc. But there was also another set of people who were just giving them away. I was a member of one Facebook group. It was a book group also, uh, with mostly young people. And you had a lot of the members saying that, oh, I have this folder with all of these ebook files, so if you want it, just let me know so I can share that folder with you. And then I checked it out, and there were so many ebook files, mostly of YA novels. Not a lot of local novels, so mostly the bestsellers. And when someone called them out, they were like, should this not be done? Because I'm a reader and I love these stories, I just wanted to share it, and I'm sure other people will appreciate reading it. It was fascinating to me because when you talk about piracy in the industry, it's always like, you know, these pirates. Trying like, to steal income from authors. Yes, and that's their primary goal. Yeah, they're so bad. And it's like they, they view it as a criminal offense. But then you go to this community of readers, these young people, who just want to share books because they love it. 
And it didn't even occur to them. For some of them, I'm not saying all, but for some of them, they were thinking that it's something that's really done because other people also share the file with them. So they just want to... And also, when you have a book, this is what you do. You go, I read this, here you go, go yes. and read it. It's a really good book. Yeah. So they had no concept that it was illegal, which I think also has to do with educating people about rights and all of that. But they were also just readers excited to share the book. And I was thinking, okay, for that set of people, how do you deal with that? How do you tell them that, oh, you actually shouldn't be sharing these files? But how do you talk to them in such a way that you also don't tap down on their passion to share? I don't have an answer, but I just thought it was fascinating. So what about accessibility for people who have different needs? So I know based on what other readers have told me, for people with vision impairment, audiobooks are really, really important because it allows them to read books really, really easily. So what are some of the ways in which uh, books are available to readers who have special here. needs. Yeah, here. Because you guys don't have iBooks, do you? No, we don't. We can't actually purchase books from iBooks. And to be frank with you, I'm not aware of a lot of efforts or a lot of initiatives being done for special needs. Do you guys have a lot of audiobooks for local local books? No, we don't. Okay. Um, and that was also something that I learned from... The other people in my company right now, the representative from Japan and from Korea, audiobooks are big there. In fact, when they look at a title, I think what the bookstores are also asking is, is there an audiobook version? Is that primarily audio on CD or audio online, like an audible audio? That part, I'm not sure, but Penguin Random House sells the CDs too. There's also the digital version, so like, Audible, so I don't know what the percentage is, but they like the format, the audiobook format. Uh, here, you have, at least basing it from the communities that I know, you have more and more people listening to podcasts and more and more people asking for audiobooks. But how many is that? And local publishers aren't actually producing audiobooks yet. Because one of the things that they always said about the book industry in the Philippines, uh, so my professor who's a book historian, she was saying that the written word wasn't actually something that was in the country in early times. It was something that we just had to adapt or get used to. But storytelling. The oral tradition. Is, the oral and tradition it's still very is, strong in a lot of yes. places here. So actually that would be interesting for me. The other interesting thing to me uh-huh. about audio books is the audio itself, so uh-huh. Filipino English. As we talk now, my yes. friends were laughing because I, I told them, I warned them, when I do the Filipino interviews, I'm not going to sound exactly the same. And they, yeah. they just <laughs> cracked up. They're like, what do you mean? I was like, I just, it feels weird. And then so they said, well, talk to us with a Filipino accent. And I said, no, I can't because yeah. it feels weird when I talk to you in the yes. Philippines. And Mina is doing some experimenting around extracts from books mm-hmm. in audio. And when I listen to that, it's obviously going to be, it's going to have a different sound to something that you get on Audible. Right. So in Audible, you're used to American yes. narrators. You're yeah. used to British narrators. Sometimes you'll get the odd Australian narrator, but it's, I think it's close enough probably to the British accent that most people can cope with it. But the Filipino accent is not the same, and it's very distinct. So I'm, I find that I'm going to find that very interesting to see how that's, how well that's received, or how easy it is for people to hear the language. I would be interested too, 
One of the discussions also, which I, I found out recently, was that if it's a British movie, it doesn't do so really well. Unless, of course, you have Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> or, you know, what's his the name? usuals. Yeah, the usuals. <laughs> but it's, it's the accent. People are more used to the American accent here. But I would be interested to like, see an audiobook read by a Filipino in Filipino English and see how people take to that. Also because when Fault in Our Stars was translated to Tagalog, people got mad. Ooh, why? Because they were saying, why are you translating Fault in Our Stars to Tagalog? You're destroying the language. You know, it was written in English. It should be read in English. And it was just crazy because they were saying, no, books should not be translated. And I was like, are you aware of what happens in publishing? <laughs> <laughs> That's what authors and publishers want. They want the book to be translated into as many languages as possible because it means it reaches more readers. But it was, it's not a thing here because we speak English. And English is like an aspirational language. Right. So English So you're books, downgrading the book when you translate it to, to exactly, Tagalog. Exactly. That's what a lot of people thought. They were saying, no, you, something is lost in the translation. I'm like, that's amazing oh, to oh me. my God. <laughs> like, well, not just that, because I actually find Tagalog as a language is more flowery than English. So when you're talking about is. literary prose, I find Filipino, Filipino language prose to be a lot more. Yeah. Literary. <laughs> so it was something that, so I, I think I joined that, that, that thread. <laughs> Did your I head explode? Like, <laughs> I tried not to, but like, I shared it. I was like, oh my God. It would have been fine if the discussion were like, oh, the translation shouldn't have been this. It should have been this because it has to do with like, like a technical thing. Yes. The decision that the translator makes. But no, most of it was like, it should not have been translated. Do you know if the sales were were decent of the translated book? According to the publisher, yeah. Okay, it good. Was really okay. I mean, I'm assuming they're aiming to reach a different type of audience that's not who already owns the book. Exactly, right. Because right. most of the people commenting were people who read the English book. And, I'm say, and I was saying that this isn't for you. You read the English book. That's fine. But this is for other readers. I mean, I think we take yeah. it for granted, the people who can read and speak English, we take it for granted that we were educated to be able to understand and speak English. But yes. actually didn't realize that this was not a hugely common thing. Not just that it's not common, but even for people who studied English, not all of them are comfortable English speakers. I think that that kind of thinking is also a little bit vanilla-centric. Yeah. Because... You know, you expect that everyone can read English, everyone can understand English, and why would someone want to read an English book in Filipino or in Tagalog? But flip it the other way. Should we be teaching English better? Yes. In the should. regional areas? Definitely, yeah. Although now there is um, the Mother Tongue Initiative, which says that English should only be taught, I think, in grade three, so that you, uh, the kids understand oh, from the concept, grade three. from grade three onwards. So yeah. you have a chance to be fluent in your native regional or whatever yes, tongue. Because um, right. it helps you grasp the concepts better. I mentioned that, that whole translation thing and how it's not something that people were comfortable with to begin with. Um, because if you have an audiobook and you have a Filipino reading it in Filipino English, what I would be interested in is if they would like that better. Uh, if they feel that that's a downgrade from an American accent. Yes. Nice. Mm, yeah. That's a good question. But to go back to your other question, my daughter has Down syndrome, and she has an iPad, and I love the iPad for Oh, hang for on. Her. So you actually, when you were working, I think, for the e-book publisher 
uh-huh. your previous job, you guys released like a children's book app, I think. I think I downloaded that for my kids. Yes. Hoping um, that they would learn Tagalog, maybe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, that was actually one of the early experiments of children's book apps. That was for um, another, it was for an educational company and uh, there were children's books and we wanted to like come out with a bilingual uh, children's book. So there was an app. And, um, and now when I look at it, it's not like the most sophisticated app, of course, but it was a fun thing to try to experiment with because you have to talk about um, user experience, you know, where do you put the icons and how is the reader supposed to interact with it. And I don't know how those things are doing now because I remember we came out with five of them and they took a lot of time. Well, not, not a lot, but you know, a lot of resources were expended. But of course, apps, you don't sell them for a lot of money. You're really counting on volume. Yes. And then I think only a couple of months after I was asking, so how's it doing? Mm, we had fun doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. It was a so, fun project. It was a fun project. <laughs> the illustrators had a lot of fun. Yeah. So, and, and the programmers and the app developers, you know. I know that there are some other children's book uh, publishers who have come out with apps. I haven't really downloaded them yet and checked how they are for kids. Although, because I was doing the apps before, I experimented with my kids. You know, I brought home the work iPad, I gave it to my son and my daughter, and some of them it's actually my voice in English. So I was like, oh look, it's like mama reading you a story. <laughs> and my son went through it like one time, and he was like, oh, it's nice. And he didn't go back to it. So I was wondering, is it just because it's my son or you know is that I think kids want something tactile now my daughter the one with down syndrome a storybook app possibly because of the content and the words there it's not really for her she doesn't read yet she has her iPad filled with educational apps which are more like for phonics and reading and she loves those and some of them help them read but they're not like stories I'm not sure if there are any local apps for for kids like her yet lots of like foreign apps but it would be something interesting because my daughter also speaks mostly filipino i mean she she does have you know english words but she speaks mostly filipino but of course her apps are teaching her english words because they're not filipino apps it would be nice though because there is a very big community here locally it's a vibrant community so it'd be nice if they were all served so to finish off, uh-huh. what books are you currently reading and are you excited about? Oh God, okay. <laughs> well, right now, I just finished one book uh, called Sergio Y. It was published by Europa Editions. It's a literary fiction novel and it's written by a Brazilian author who is part of the new urban movement in Brazil. And it's an LGBT novel. It's actually interesting, the main character is a therapist and he was treating a teenage boy and the teenage boy ended the sessions with him because the boy said that I found my happiness, I found how to be happy, I'm moving to New York. And so the therapist was like, okay, I've helped him. And apparently in New York, this boy transitioned. So he had an operation um, and he was from from Sergio, he's now Sandra, and the therapist was wondering, how come I never detected anything? So he was on the search, because eventually this this boy dies, and he was on a search to 
find out like what happened what was it that I said or I didn't say you know that I missed this completely so it was a, it was nicely written I love that novel now I'm trying to read either Justin Cronin The City of Mirrors okay which is oh the, I saw that in your Instagram <laughs> yeah this is the third book in his The Passage trilogy so it's a post-apocalypse vampire thing. It's interesting because when I was talking to one of the salespeople about this, he was saying that the bookstores sometimes aren't sure whether to put this in the genre or literary fiction because it can sort of straddle both, which is probably why people are confused about it. So, And then I'm also trying to read um, Highly Illogical Behavior by John Corey Whaley, which is a young adult. And it's about a kid who has phobia. He doesn't oh, want to okay. go out. Uh, but then there's this girl who has to have like a project, like a really, really good project so she can apply to her university. And she wants to work on this boy and cure him. So we'll see how that turns out. No, I was going to say, how does it end? But you're not up to that yet. Ah, uh, yes. No, <laughs> I just started it. So yeah, there's so many, there's so many interesting titles that are coming out. And it's weird because it's my job to like, talk about them, mostly to booksellers, so that they buy the books. Uh, but I also want to talk about them to people. But then I'm at that stage right now where I'm second-guessing myself because I'm thinking... Oh, Am I marketing to my friends? Yes, yeah. Well, they think that I'm selling this because I'm trying to sell it to them and marketing. Or, but I just really want to talk about it, but maybe like, you know, I have to tone it down. So. Well, what's the uh, last really good Filipino-authored book that you read? Eliza Victoria's Wounded Little Gods. It's a mix of local mythology and, of course, fantasy. The story is this young girl. She has this co-worker who leaves her, like, a map, and the map is of a place in her hometown. But she's both familiar and not familiar with that place because okay. she knows a general area, but she knows that there, there are no buildings like this in this area. So she goes home just to... You know, just to like find out what the mystery is all about. And Eliza, I don't know if you've read a book by Eliza. I should get you a book by Eliza. She won a palanca when she was in her 20s. Um, she writes both poetry and fiction. And uh, what I love about what she's doing, aside from her being a very, very good writer, is that a few years ago she started writing novels. She also has a couple of novelettes, which we published before when I was working with an ebook company. And I think, uh, and I hope, you know, this is not like uh, a kiss of death or anything. But I think Eliza is the one primed really to break into an international market. Her work is sort of a mix of like local, you know, local mythology. So you know it's distinctly Filipino, but there's also universal aspect to it. Like the stories um, in that story, One of the Little Gods, you know, it's a mystery. It's also about like pride and selfishness of children, all of that. And she writes really, really well. And that wraps up our series of interviews from the Philippines. Huge thanks to our awesome audio producer, Rudy Bremer, and to the wonderful hashtag romance class community in Manila, who welcomed me with books, chocolates, and fresh mangoes. Not a euphemism. You can find the show notes at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. Just click on episode 29. I'm chuffed to receive our first tweet feedback for 2017. Anna, who tweets as It's Time Anna, with one N, 
said this about episode 16. I really enjoyed the Book Thingo podcast episode with Tessa Dare. I must bump the other Castles Ever After books up my TBR. Yes, I totally agree with this plan, and I was also guilty of this. So after I read Anna's tweet, I went ahead and downloaded all of Tessa Dare's Spindle Cove books. If you missed Tessa's interview, make sure you download episode 16 of the podcast titled Desperation and Starbucks. If you have any feedback or suggestions, you can send me a tweet at BookThingo or send an email to podcast at bookthingo.com.au. And please visit the blog to check out reviews and opinions from a bunch of readers from Down Under, including me and Rudy. In the next episode, we'll be doing something a little different, showcasing romance reader events happening in Australia in 2017. One of these events sold out of tickets within five hours. Can you believe that? I am so stoked that Australian readers have so many events to look forward to this year. Until then, I hope you have a fabulous fortnight of reading.